You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. Welcome back to The Catalyst, everyone. Today I am joined by Kelly Braun Johnson. Kelly is an autistic and hard of hearing self-advocate and founder of Completely Inclusive, a consultancy focused on teaching businesses how to be inclusive and accessible to all. She is also a published writer and board member for a national charity. Kelly Braun is a proud non-binary black woman of mixed race with two disabled kids. Kelly, welcome to The Catalyst. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. You're someone who I've been observing for some time online. And if there's one thing I know for sure is that you are committed to change. I try. (laughs) (laughs) All of the work that you do is about changing people's attitudes and perceptions around what it means to create a truly inclusive and equitable society. And you're on a mission to create opportunities for oppressed and marginalized people, the LGBTQ plus community, and the disabled community to have equity and access. What has that journey been like? Oh, I feel like it's a long time coming. Um, I feel that change is is always going to be a long process. Um, People don't want to change attitudes very quickly. Um, And if you ask me, you know, what has, what has the climate kind of been, how people have been accepting, um, I feel that this is something that should have happened 20 years ago. So I, I don't want to be negative. I'm just saying that it, it is hard work. It's and it's work that a lot of us are doing. Um, and I always feel that there is space for more of us to be doing this work. And there's definitely more space for uh, companies to adapt and and want to take on these kind of projects and and to focus on inclusion uh, as a as a primary focus and a primary goal. So yeah, I don't, you know, people ask me, they say, well, everybody's in diversity and inclusion now. And yes and no. I, I say that there's so much work to be done that we're never going to step on each other's toes. I don't feel there's any competition. I feel that there's just so much work to be done, so much change that needs to happen that even if, you know, a hundred of us were in every single city, there'd still be more work to do. There's still so much work to do. So this is this is my my lifelong goal now. I feel that you know this is my passion. This is what gets me up in the morning, and I feel that I'm just going to keep doing this until 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 I can't anymore. That's pretty much it. So you mentioned that there are a lot of people kind of popping up in this space, and I do think that a lot of people are very passionate about the subject who go into this field, really hoping to enact change, but your own racialized experiences and your experiences as a disabled woman have led you to this path. Was this type of work always something you wanted to do? So I only got my, well, one of my diagnoses, I only got when my early thirties. And even then I kind of launched into advocacy and I joined a nonprofit um, as a board member, but it it didn't become part of my work work until uh, a bit later. Hmm. And actually, this, uh, I guess, interesting sort of story about what led to that. Basically, I, um, I 
through this nonprofit, I went to Parliament Hill and we were protesting the cutbacks that were made to the disability tax credit. Um, for those that don't know, it's a, it's a tax credit that only um, specific disabilities uh, can kind of uh, apply for it. It's the way that the, the application is worded, it's, it's, there's a lot of barriers to people applying for it and to, to getting what, you know, they should be, um, they deserve to have. Um, anyway, so a lot of changes had happened to the point where the government was cutting back on people's applications. They were taking away people's credits. So uh, let's say somebody had uh, become an amputee and lost a leg the government was asking them to go back to the doctor and prove and get a medical note to prove that their leg hadn't grown back in the what? last year. Yes, ser I'm completely serious. They had to prove that they were still disabled and that they were still missing a leg. Um, people with diabetes had to go back and prove that they still needed insulin in order to survive and that hadn't changed. Um, that's disgraceful. Thing, that's what's been going on. <laughs> And the same thing with, with autism, people who uh, were diagnosed with autism, the government was asking them to go back and prove that they're still autistic and that they still um, require the credit. So I went to Parliament Hill uh, to speak and uh, I came back home that evening. I took the train and I, I was tucking my, my eldest son in bed and I, I was explaining to him why, you know, why did mommy go to Ottawa today um, and what I was doing. And I said, you know, I'm trying to make it easier for you and for others so that you won't have to fight for these things. Um, and so he was eight at the time. And I said, you know, your, your credit apparently will expire when you're 18. So he said, oh, well, you've got 10 years. <laughs> That's not a problem. You can do that. You know, what's the problem? And I thought, oh, the audacity of a child, but it's true. And I, I said, you know what? 10 years is actually a long time. And it's a good amount of time to make change. So the kind of a light bulb went off and I said, you know what? Then this is what I'm going to do. This is going to be my work. I mean, if he says I can do it, if I've got an eight-year-old kid telling me, hey, mom, <laughs> you can do this. Um, I decided I could. And so I founded my company completely inclusive. And I, I decided that I would start working with businesses to try and change perceptions and, uh, you know, misconceptions and, and break down these barriers to make life easier. Um, my belief is that by changing company cultures and everybody in them, uh, eventually those attitudes and that change will spill over into all of society to have greater acceptance and understanding of difference. So I don't know if that is, you know, what is actually going to happen, but that is my hope. That's my dream. Uh, and that is the whole basis of, of why I got into this work. That's incredible. I love I love that he saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself right away and thought, well, who am I to tell him he's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and as you've gone into this work and starting to get more familiar with organizations and what it is they're prioritizing, do you feel that they're moving in this direction of being more open to having the discussion of inclusiveness and diversity and access accessibility because it makes good business sense? Or do you feel that the, the sense is that they actually believe this is the right thing to do? 
Yeah, it can be tough. It can be tough to uh, make that business case. Uh, but, you know, luckily, we actually do have numbers that do correlate with ROI. Mm. Um, so to me, you know, that's not the only reason you should be doing this. You should be doing it because it's the right thing to do. Um, but if you need the numbers, we've got the numbers. So we know for a fact that uh, diversity increases your profitability. Um, and that can just be as simple as having women in leadership. We know that those uh, companies are more profitable. Um, we know that having disabled people specifically in the workplace increases productivity. It increases innovation in a team because people with disabilities are natural problem solvers. We're, we're living in a world that's not made for us. So we're constantly having to come up with workarounds on how to get things done, things that everybody else takes for granted. Um, so we bring those kind of that kind of innovation into our work and that kind of creativity. We're so used to coming up with all sorts of solutions to everyday problems. Um, we also know that employee retention goes up when you hire disabled people. And this is twofold. One is disabled people are just more loyal to the company. They take fewer sick days. The other interesting thing that kind of trickles down is that when other employees see the disabled person being so loyal and so dedicated, they start to up their game. Because I think mm. they feel like, uh-oh, look at this person. They've got all these challenges but they're actually like super enthusiastic and doing better than me. I better, you know, I better uh, work on my act. Um, Interesting. That, yeah, it's really interesting because it just kind of motivates other people to do better. And again, you know, I don't want to look at it like inspiration porn. You know, the point is not to exploit people to, to exploit these differences. Uh, but we do know that, you know, the numbers don't lie, that these do bring benefits. If you're only looking at it numbers, numbers are great and you will have results um, but if not you're just going to see a whole bunch of different benefits uh, in addition to the to the increased profitability so you can make a choice uh, in how you want to start your change um, but i think that once people try it out and they start um, they start doing it you know companies start to realize that there's just there's more benefits than just you know the roi it is a business after all. And I love that your response was, if you got, if you want numbers, we've got numbers because that's such an important part of change is to go in with proof, whether that's social proof, whether that is numeric proof, financial proof, but something that will speak to the motivator of the other party so that they feel this change is in line with what it is that matters to them. Mm -hmm. And the perspective shift that happens along the way of, you know what, this is actually really great for morale, or this is really great for employee retention. I'm seeing my employees are happier at work. I mean, let that be an added benefit if it's going to be what sparks making a difference. Yeah, for sure. What are you finding that the organizations that you're working with are most challenged by as they embark on becoming a more inclusive and accessible organization? I would say, I guess the biggest question that I get all the time is um, there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of fear. So there's fear in the sense of, um, let's say I've hired this marginalized person. Now, am I able to fire them? Because <laughs> they get kind of concerned. Well, if we're, if we're kind of checking boxes, if we're doing it that way and we're saying, well, we need one of these and one of these and one of these, um, 
and then let's say we do need to fire them, are they going to come at us with a human rights complaint or discrimination? There's, there's that. And it's an unfortunate topic to bring up, but uh, it's, it's true. That's one of their concerns. Um, and I can allay that fear very easily. Yes, you are allowed to fire uh, a marginalized person. That's okay. The same rules apply. It's not that they're under some sort of special rules. And I'd say another worry is that they worry that the productivity is not going to be there. Mm-hmm. They're concerned that for whatever reason, they have this impression that the person is just not going to be as productive as an able-bodied person. And again, that's not, that's not the case because we come, you know, most disabled people come with our own accommodations kind of built in to some extent, but if there's a particular, um, software that we need to use, like a screen reader, we usually come with that. We're not obliging a company to pay for those things. We're not obliging a company to pay for any assistive devices. Um, and most accommodations also, they, co- they cost under $500 if we're gonna significantly change a workplace for someone. Um, so again, not a very high cost involved. Uh, so those kind of fears, you know, they shouldn't, that shouldn't be a worry. Um, and yeah, so we come, you know, we come with the, the things that we're going to need. Most people will come and say, uh, you know, I might need a, I might, I might need noise counseling, counseling a headset or something so that I can drown out the noise. Um, now that people are mostly, uh, working remotely, that issue has also been kind of, um, taken away, uh, because people can then set up their, their home offices how it works best for them right so there's there's all different ways of of how you look at it and to me there's a solution for every worry that you that you might have so what about you let's turn the tables a little bit we've been talking about the organizations that you are consulting for through your business completely inclusive but before then you were on the other side of the table i imagine looking for work and faced with some of the challenges and questions that these organizations still have what were some of those challenges as you were trying to find and keep work? And did you ever feel like you had to change who you were to fit into a system, which as you mentioned, doesn't feel like it was built for you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I'd say that in my early twenties, I didn't even think I could do office work. I just didn't think it was possible. So I actually started a company then I was teaching English as a second language and I, I started my own company uh, because I, I believe that it wasn't possible at all for me to work in an office. So I'm just going to do my own company and work on my own hours. Um, and I did that for a while. Um, and then I did take a chance uh, part-time at an office. And I didn't have my diagnosis then. So I was just basically in my mid-20s, still kind of rebellious, still kind of restless, and not really knowing why certain things were a struggle. Hmm. Um, despite that, I, I managed to get promoted. I became a supervisor uh, at that job. And then not long after I became a supervisor, I chose to quit, which is <laughs> always an interesting thing. Uh, I bring this up in my talks because a lot of the times what can happen is some employees can kind of go up the ranks uh, because that's what you're sort of supposed to do, so to speak, and not really feel like they're in control of their careers and then find the pressure might be too much. And so one of the things I advocate for is for people to really take charge uh, of their own careers and that progression and not just kind of move up and along because 
you're good at something because, you know, management wants you to. Right. Finally, when I was in my early 30s and I got diagnosed, I was working at a place where previous to my diagnosis, I was performing very well um, to the point where I had gotten uh, awards for being in the top 15% uh, in, in terms of productivity of the, of the company. That's incredible. Um, and then I disclosed to my boss after I got my diagnosis and I asked for some accommodations. I asked if I could have directions written down for me instead of him coming to my desk and kind of telling me a list of things to do and then going away. Cause I found that very, I would forget. I would just forget whatever he said. I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then I just forget. Mm. Uh, so, um, when I disclosed, he became uh, hostile, almost, um, and he told me he could not do that for me. Uh, his his excuse at the time was, "Well, if I if I start writing things down for you, I have to do that for everyone else," which I, I don't see the logic in that. But that's that was his argument. Um, I also found out later it's against uh, human rights to uh, refuse an accommodation, a perfectly reasonable accommodation. Hmm. Um, anyway, he then put my performance evaluation in the bottom 15 of the company. Hmm. And, but simultaneously, he put me on a special project, uh, which was using all of my, my best skills, my eye for detail. I was very quick at what I was doing. And I chose, I chose to quit because I didn't feel comfortable anymore i felt like it was just not 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 a place where i was welcome because he he would he did start emailing me some directions he put me on the special project but there is still this you know underlying treatment that i was apparently doing badly um so so i chose i chose to quit um and uh i found something actually much better and and much much better suited uh, and from then on i made sure to disclose during my interviews and of course, at this point too, I was so open with my own advocacy that if you looked at, at my LinkedIn profile, any company who was looking me up would see right away that I was autistic. I didn't hide it. Um, so I disclosed in my interviews and I found that that was the best way to kind of weed out who was an accepting or who had a, uh, an accepting workplace culture. Right. Um, so the, the, uh, the interviews were where people said, they were curious. They said, oh, okay, well, you're autistic. Okay, what does that mean for you? And what can we do for you? And those are the ones that I would continue to, to want to move forward with. So what was the process like when you decided this isn't the place for me anymore? Because so many of us have come to that realization in our careers where we're thinking, oh, this is not really aligned anymore. This isn't really bringing me much joy. And we get stuck because it's familiar because it's comfortable because we've been there for so long and we know how it works and the idea of getting out of our comfort zone and doing something completely new is at least in that narrative worse than leaving and so for you where finding a place that is accepting maybe an additional layer an additional challenge that you have to consider did you ever feel like you were stuck or was it, you know, once you determined it was time to move on, that was it? Yeah, I kind of, um, I am the kind of person who kind of just gets up and goes. Um, 
I had a friend who said, uh, I think she was checking in on me after I had lost a job at some point. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I took the next day off and then I, uh, I applied to five other jobs and I did. And she's like, she goes, Kelly, you don't fall. You bounce. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's just, I kind of, um, I think it's kind of important to not define yourself too much by your workplace. Um, I've got all sorts of opinions about, about workplaces, but um, I, I often feel that the, the value, uh, em- employees don't always know their value. And I think that a lot of, a lot of workplaces try to scare you and say, say, well, you know what, this is the best here and there's nothing else better out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm always kind of like, there must be something better. There has to be something better around the corner. And if not, I'm going to find it or I'm going to create it. Um, but I think that's just my personality. I, I don't tend to want to uh, stay stuck too long. When I feel stuck or trapped, I think that's, a, for me, that's that's almost like the worst thing that could possibly happen. Um, so my, my personality is very much, uh, you know, even if I'm scared, I still jump. And I, I think I've, I've done that many, many times in my life. Uh, I've been completely terrified, but I'm like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take this jump anyway and hope I bounce on the other side. <laughs> you mentioned that people sometimes have a tendency to get kind of caught up in who they are as a professional or to, I mean, I'm using my words here, but almost wrap their self-worth and their their company and what their leaders and bosses see of them. Did you ever feel like once you decided to be public about being on the spectrum, about the opportunities that that comes with and the challenges that you're faced with because of it, do you feel that that becomes your new identity? Are you perceived as a business person with autism or have you been able to maintain a sense of self separate from your diagnosis? I'd like to think that because I have so many interesting uh, identities that I don't think people label me as just one thing. Mm. Um, And I certainly never see myself as, as one label or one identity. I, I'm a interesting mishmash of (laughs) all sorts of intersections. Um, And I think everybody is, I think everybody is not just one thing or one identity. And actually I think companies often will try to silo identities. They'll they'll silo a lot of different issues or they'll silo silo, um, departments even. And and that creates a lot of, um, that creates challenges within a workplace. Whereas when you kind of embrace all your different identities um, and everybody works together with those things, I think it adds a certain richness um, and just comfort for everyone. And again, it's all about to me being comfortable, being comfortable in your own skin and being comfortable at work. If we spend so much time at work, it's important that we should feel okay to be ourselves and to bring our whole selves to work, um, whatever that means for for the individual. But, Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, I mean, I would hope not, but I, I, I don't think that when people see me, they go, oh, there's the autistic entrepreneur mm. or, you know, uh, the same way that I would hope that people don't, oh, there's the female entrepreneur. Oh, there's the black entrepreneur. Like I just, you know, mm. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that people don't see me as just one thing. I'm proud of all my, my identities, 
for me, I, I don't let that kind of stop me. And I've always felt that I want to challenge people's ideas of what they think when they hear, well, okay, she's an autistic and hard of hearing entrepreneur. And then I show up and they're like, well, I wasn't expecting her. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, you know, because people, I said, oh, your name is Kelly. That's an Irish name. I thought you'd have red hair. And then I show up and I'm like, well, I'm black. I mean, what, do you want me to go now? Like, what? <laughs> Unfortunately, sorry, I didn't live up to your expectations. But I kind of want to challenge that. I don't want the stereotype. Uh, I don't want people to think of stereotypes when they, when they, when they think of disability or they think of um, black identity or they think of anything like that. So I'm, I'm happy to be that kind of odd goose out <laughs> and, 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 and challenge people and make people think a bit differently. I feel like you're speaking directly to a pain point that I have been struggling with for some time. And I, I see myself a little bit on the flip side of the coin in that I held so dearly onto the labels that had been associated with me, whether that is a speaker, author, coach. And for those listening who've heard the past few episodes, I've made a pretty significant career shift and I felt like I was giving up those titles and had such a hard time with it. And they were ones that really did start to define me. And so letting go of that and not of them, not of the accomplishments and the things that I've done, because they're still very much part of me, but letting go of the labels has been a lot more work than I had anticipated. I didn't realize how important they were to me. And it's kind of silly in hindsight. <laughs> when I hear you speak about really not subscribing to labels and not allowing people's kind of preconceived notions to define how you show up. I really respect that because I feel like I just got caught up in it for so long. Mm. Well, yeah, you know, over time, I think that's what can happen for sure. But I'm somebody that has sort of redefined myself many, many times. Mm -hmm. and I think that, especially the younger generation coming up when they're entering the workforce, I think that that's going to become more normalized. Um, you know, I've jumped careers. I, I was I started out as an English teacher and then I I went into marketing and I did marketing for 10 years and then I got into to accessibility. So I'm I, I still have those skills in marketing. I still have the certifications. So, you know, I and the fantastic part of that is I can take those skills. I'm not a marketer anymore. I don't consider myself a digital marketer anymore. But they're certainly beneficial with my business. For sure. So, you know, I set up my own website. I take care of all that. I do all my own social media. So I think it's kind of important to take, you know, my father always used to say knowledge is never lost and to take those achievements and take those knowledge and, and you're using them in a different way. You're still the same person, the still multifaceted person. And you're taking all that with you. You know, you're never, you're not throwing that away because you've, you're choosing to focus on something a bit different. Right. It's, it's, it's so important. I'm in the thick of it. I'm learning it in real time. <laughs> For those listening who have felt perhaps confined by labels or maybe have shed the labels and then felt that they weren't accepted for who they are, what parting words would you like to share with them? Hmm. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to kind of uh, children first. You know, this is where we kind of start to develop our identities and our awareness of who we are as individuals. 
and that's you know it's it's an exciting time but it's also a scary time and i think that parents have a lot of influence in helping children understand who they are and really accept them for who they are you know a lot of parents have ideas that they think oh well, this person's going to be kind of just like me or i hope that they're going to i don't know play baseball like i did or something um and they can let those expectations kind of rub off on their children to the point where their children feel a, a certain pressure to live up to those expectations. And the fact is, you know, genetically, maybe they might be just as good as doing the same thing as, as you are, but that doesn't mean they're going to enjoy it. Um, so to me, it's really important to teach acceptance as you're learning who this person is. I think that's probably one of the most exciting parts of parenting is to learn who this person is becoming and then to accept them fully for who they are and teach them how to accept themselves. And I think that is how you end up with adults who are then not so scared um, to be accepting of themselves and to be open. Um, I think a lot of times, sometimes that feeling of being stuck is because they're scared you're gonna disappoint someone and it, it could be your parents, it could be anyone else, it could be um, who you think people think you are. Um, and so it's, it's a learning process. And, and even, you know, I, I speak a lot to adults when identities change, for example, you know, when you get diagnosed with a disability, there's a, there's a period that you have to go through to um, learn about that and to accept the change that has you know occurred and then you you kind of mourn who you thought you might be um but then you have to learn about what the gifts are that you have that you can continue to to use and to bring to the world so like everything it's a process it's it's a process and i think we need to be patient with ourselves when we're developing our identity and accepting ourselves I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, totally. It's so beautifully said as well. And I am so glad you brought it there because this is, if I'm not mistaken, exactly what your new book is about. Oh, okay. close. The first time I've actually published my own book um, it was just last month and it's called How to Parent Like an Autistic. And you know, when, when people hear that title, they get all sorts of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and again, I think I, I, I named it that because of the ideas that people might have about autism and to think that, you know, we might not be good parents uh, or that we lack empathy. And there's just a lot of myths out there. Uh, but in fact, there are lots of autistic parents and it seems to be sort of genetic and we end up having uh, neurodivergent kids or autistic kids specifically. And so I kind of went in with the idea that I noticed that from surveying other parents, I noticed that we do things a little bit differently from other parents um, and that we seem to just really get our kids and also just accept them. Um, so we don't parent with the same worry that a lot of um, non-autistic parents do because we, we know what it's like. We know what our, what our development was like. And we know what worked for us and what didn't work for us. So we're able to support in a way that I think is just more conducive to 
to uh, raising happy, well-adjusted uh, autistic kids. So that's kind of the, the idea I went in with. Um, I, I kind of want neurotypical parents not to worry so much. I don't, I don't want them, a lot of times they'll get very stuck in the present time and they were, oh, you know, my kid's not talking or my kid's not potty trained. Is it always going to be this way? And so in my book, I kind of cover that and I say, well, no, it's not always going to be that way. And I, I'm pretty sure, but if not, that's actually not the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> there's this, there's ways around these things. Um, and there are accommodations out there and you know, that's, that's not where your worry should be. Your worry should be about making uh, a happy childhood uh, and, and hopefully changing society with more acceptance that that should be, I think where people's uh, main concerns should be and their focus should be. And where can we get our hands on a copy of this book? So it is out um, on Amazon and available in 14 countries as an ebook or print version. And it's available in Kobo uh, ebook format as well. Um, and I'm hoping to have it up on Apple Books at some point in the future. Um, but I do have a website for the book and you can find all those links. And it's actually parentlikeanautistic.com. Wonderful. And where can people learn more about your business and potentially bringing you on board as a consultant for theirs? I am always on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay, not always. I'm very reachable on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. I have, a, I have a company page and a personal page. Um, and I also have a website, uh, completelyinclusive.org. You can find me there. Kelly, thank you so much for sharing your story so openly and for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.